Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Got a really exciting show for you today. Chris Agos is on the show. Chris is an actor that has just done so much work in this business. He's had guest spots on House of Cards, on Grey's Anatomy. He had a recurring guest role on Chicago Fire and Chicago PD. He is in the new Apple TV Plus series for All Mankind, uh, playing Buzz Aldrin, which is sort of an alternative look at the space race that happened back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, it's sort of one of those rewriting history uh, fictional dramas, but really interesting. Uh, he, he's in that as well. Chris is a guy that you're probably not going to see on the cover of People magazine or being covered in Access Hollywood or anything like that. He is a working actor. And I think for a lot of people outside of the business, when they think of actors, they just think of the big stars that are walking the red carpet and things like that. But those of us in the industry know that acting is a profession. And there are tons and tons of actors that can make a living doing that kind of work. Chris actually got his start in Chicago and uh, he taught for a long time in Chicago as well, taught acting and wrote a great book, Acting in Chicago, which is sort of a, a guide to to being a working actor in the Midwest. And we talk a lot about that in the interview. Uh, he also wrote a book, Voiceover Startup Guide, which I think is really helpful now, just realizing that there aren't going to be a lot of jobs on set for a long time. So if you're an actor and you can figure out how to get work as a voice actor, that's a, that's a great opportunity then, right? So... Chris and I have a really great talk. And what I like about this is I think it's good advice for people in any industry. We talk a lot about networking. We talk a lot about developing yourself professionally. And of course, these are skills that really matter when you're talking about television or film, whether it's production or acting. But it's also just really good advice for anybody in any job. So I hope you get some stuff out of it. I really enjoyed talking to him. Here is my interview with Chris Agos. Hey, Chris. Uh, thanks for calling. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm just you know yeah. yeah I think like like everybody, <laughs> just trying to figure this all out, right? Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. We are um, in unusual times. Let's put it that way. Yeah, for sure. What uh, what have you guys been doing? How are you? How are you keeping sane during that? You get two two kids, right? Twin yeah, boys, got is that two right? Little boys, uh huh. Yeah, twin ten year olds. Um, and you know, I I kind of am jealous of the people who are online talking about how bored they are because <laughs> right we have we have plenty to do. You yeah, know, it's mostly mostly revolves around keeping them on task at school and making sure that. Um, you know, they're, they're like handling their assignments and they're understanding things. And so, um, but you, you know, cause you have little kids. Yeah. You? I got a seven and a four year old and uh, yeah. So the seven year olds in school and you know, she's, she's at the point now, thankfully where, you know, the teacher can kind of send worksheets that are fairly self-guided. We, we help her with, you know, maybe the first one or two pieces of it. And then she can kind of get through the rest on her own. Uh, but yeah, the four-year-old definitely, <laughs> he needs a lot more of our attention. Oh my gosh. But yeah, uh, yeah no. Very, very hands-on. Totally. But I feel you just in terms of like, you know, seeing people posting online that, you know, oh man, you know, I played video games for five hours today or, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, watched 70 movies last month or, you know, just that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, by the time the kids are in bed, we have 
maybe an hour, hour and a half to ourselves, but we're wiped. You know, we're <laughs> we're asleep yeah. by nine, nine thirty most nights. But yeah, yeah, that that's part of what this is about is just having a creative outlet and 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 a chance to kind of process all of it. You know, it's weird. Yeah. Like I don't know where we're headed, but it is it is weird, and that's part of the. Um, I think that's just part of the stress. You know, it's one thing when a natural disaster happens, you know, you have an earthquake or a tornado or something, it's, it's tangible, you know, you see the damage and you see what is it's going to take to get out of it and put things back the way they were. And I just don't think, I think what makes this so difficult is that there doesn't seem to be a plan or, or, or any indicator of like how to get back to work. You look out your window and everything looks normal. Right. And you're like, it's just a regular day, but you have, nowhere to go right um and it, it's it's tough yeah so i'm curious like I, I i did some digging on you and just you know i i read a couple of pages of uh of acting in chicago it's it's actually a book that um as i started you know i read like the amazon preview of it and i was like this is yeah. a book that i wish i had like 20 years ago and not that I was ever going to be an actor necessarily, but, you know, I, I took a couple acting classes in college and, and thought about doing that. And, you know, I grew up in Cleveland and spent some time in Kansas City before coming to Boston. And just the thought of being a working actor in the Midwest and that there's somebody sort of sharing those secrets. I, I was really excited by that. And just like, I'm curious sort of, what what led you to want to to write the book and share all those those tricks of the trade with people? Well, you know, I tell everybody that the book wouldn't exist without my wife, uh, because that's true. And um, we, it was a long time ago, maybe 10 or 10 or 11 years ago. And uh, I think the book came about because I was was teaching actors at the time. Um, and many of the actors that I was teaching were asking me the same questions. And mostly they revolved around the business aspects of things because it's um, teaching the the business end of acting is a relatively new phenomenon. Sure. Um, mostly when actors get trained, you know, they they work on the actual craft of acting. Um, but nobody ever taught them like how to actually sustain a career. There was just sort of like that was left for them to figure out on their own. So as I was teaching and answering these questions repetitively, I think I I said at one point to my wife, I said, you know, somebody should just write a book on this stuff. And she was like, you're right. You should do that. You should be the (laughs) one to do that. (laughs) And, you know, I thought about it and I thought, well, yeah, if I could figure out a way to organize the information in one place and present it in a way that doesn't really make any promises, but that lays everything out, um, in as logical a, a format as possible, then yeah, that would be a useful resource. And that would save me from having to answer all the questions over sure. and over again. And, um, and so that's what we did. You know, I, I, uh, it took about a year, year and a half actually of, of writing, um, and collecting information and, and all of that stuff to put it together. But in the end, you know, it's, um, it's very gratifying when, you know, an actor from the Midwest, you know, sends me an email or hits me up on Instagram or whatever and says, Hey, I I read the book and it's, you know, it cut years off of the effort that I was making or it just made things so much clearer or whatever. So, um, so that feels really good. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so important, you know, it's, 
you talk about it on the acting side and for me on the production side too, you know, I, I went to a film school. There weren't really classes that focused on that piece. And I remember I had a comedy writer, te- comedy writing teacher, Marty Cook, that she was just phenomenal. And half the class was about writing, but half was about getting employed. And th- there were just all these little things. I still remember just like, you know, it's worth it to FedEx your resume to an office versus mailing it. Because if you mail it, the assistant is probably going to open it and it's going to be in a big pile. But if you FedEx it, usually it goes right to the person you want it to. And I was like, Oh, that's brilliant. It was like, you know, you can't do that for every job, but if there's a job you really want, yeah, like FedEx. And this was, you know, 15 years ago. So some of that may have changed, but she also just taught us, you know, the importance of, of networking and, and sort of doing it. In a classy way, I guess, and I know you touch on that a lot too. Of you know, if you see that somebody just landed a new series or was up for an Emmy Award nomination, or you know, any of that kind of stuff, you see they get recognized in some way. Like spending some time to write them a nice card or an email or something, just those little acts that you know they stand out. People remember that stuff, and and I wouldn't have known that as a, you know, 19, 20 year old kid, like you're, all you're thinking about is how do I get that paycheck? How do I get to do this professionally? And, you know, it's important, I think, to lay that groundwork in, in people that just, this is such a relationship based business, right? It is at the end of the day, it's exactly what it is. I mean, your end of the business behind the camera, my end in front of the camera, it really all depends on your relationships. And I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, it's all in who you know, but there is a certain amount of truth to that. Uh, you, you have to have, um, it, it really does help to have a, a reputation of being easy to work with and being sort of personable and, you know, being someone that's part of a team, um, so, main, you know, not only creating but maintaining relationships is the key to getting repeat business. Sure. Um, because, you know, when, you know, acting is, is very short-term work. I mean, I sometimes work for a client for as little as a day. Right. You know, but I, but I want to be hired by them again. So not only am I paying attention to the job that I'm doing on the day, but I also, you know, make sure that I'm following up and I... Uh, I make sure I keep track of them. Um, and like you said, you, you, you know, you keep in touch and you do your networking stuff in a very respectful sort of non cringy way, right? Because we can smell, you know, people who are just kind of fishing for work a mile away. Right. Um, but if you just kind of act like a normal human being and you treat these people like friends or at least acquaintances that you'd like to keep in touch with, then it comes off as much much more um, palatable and people then don't mind that you keep in touch with them. Yeah. You know, so it's all in how you do it. Well, and I think it's important too. like people don't put, I, I feel like they often think that that's the act of networking without an end in mind is kind of pointless. I, I was just saying there's this guy that he was emailing me for a couple of years and, and really wanted to come work with us. And it, it just, his timing was always wrong. And, it, you know, sometimes it would take me, two or three weeks to write him back. Sometimes I could get back to him in a day or two, but it was always just very polite. You know, it's timing's not working. And finally I realized, you know what? Like at some point I'm going to have an opening and maybe I should just meet this guy. He seems really interested. And I said, look, I don't have anything for you right now, but if you want to come in and do an informational interview, I'd be happy to sit down and meet you and, you know, talk to you about my job and just hear about your, your credentials and whatever. 
and he ghosted me after I never heard from him again. And I was like, wow, you're kidding. Like that's you're the, kidding. yeah. Like, you know, it, it's, it, you, you have to take advantage of those opportunities, I think to just, you know, that's, that's meet people and see what me. they're up to. Right. Like, yeah, if it, it, it was just about the job, I think of just like, is this, is this job available or not? It's not okay. Forget it. <laughs> you know, let me try again in six months. But there's such a um, a contrast there between the amount of time and effort he put in. Like he invested all of this time emailing you back and forth, thinking right. that there was going to be a result at the end. And just because it wasn't the result that he wanted, he bailed on that and right. decided that all of his time and effort wasn't worth anything. And that just seems to be so short-sighted because he took the long view and he was willing to kind of keep at it over right. the course of a couple of years. Yeah. But when it came down to it, he was like, no, he doesn't have a job for me. Forget that. Right. You know, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. I just feel like, you know, however, like, however you maintain your relationships, you just always have to have faith that at some point, you know, there's going to be some mutual benefit. And it's, you know, it's not that there's a winner or a loser. It has to work out for everybody, yeah. you know, in that, in that relationship. So if you don't, if you don't go into it with any like super high expectations, then, you know, you'd be happy with whatever happens. Yeah. And it's a collaborative field, right? I mean, we all, we all need oh each gosh. other. So it's not, it's not this weird, like you scratch my back, I'll scratch it. It's like, well, no, I, I need somebody, you know, I'm looking for a really good cameraman for that day. And then I need a really good sound person for that, you know, whatever. And you don't always know exactly what you need until you need it. And then you're really happy to have, have the contacts that you do. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, we all have jobs to do. We all have a problem. And I look at auditions like that, like I, this is a chance for everybody in the room to solve a problem. You know, it just so happens that the producer has this job that they need somebody to do. Now, maybe I'm the right guy for it, but maybe I'm not. But regardless, you know, it's a, it's a team effort to try to figure out, you know, is, is what I bring to the table part of the solution or not? Right. Um, and that way that kind of removes also the, 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 personalization out of it like it doesn't make it personal yeah you know? um actors are really good at taking it taking you know negative news harshly like, sure well it must be you know i didn't get the job so i must suck or you know whatever they didn't like me but it has you know often as you know casting decisions have nothing to do with whether they liked you or not it was just there's like a whole host of other things that go into it so, right whatever I can do on my end to like remove that, the personal aspect of it just helps out a lot. Yeah. And it must, it must've taken a while to get there. I mean, I'm just curious, sort of your, your entry into this business, just sort of at what point did you decide you wanted to be an actor and and what was that journey? (laughs) I, I laugh because like, I think I, I was an actor for a good four or five or six years before I actually called myself an actor. I just kind of, <laughs> I, 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 I got into this business doing voiceover work. Uh-huh. Um, and that was really where my focus was. I thought I would, you know, be perfectly happy just, you know, in a, in a little recording studio somewhere, just, just recording, uh, commercials and stuff. And, uh, I met an agent for that kind of work. And I told her, you know, I'm, I'm a voice talent. And she's like, Oh, do you ever do on camera work? And I literally asked her, I was like, well, what's that? I had no idea. <laughs> well, like there was this whole other thing. I was like talking, are you talking about acting? Like yeah. I'm not an actor. I'm a voiceover guy. And she's like, here, go take this class. And I, I took a class. It was a class on like 
you know, acting in commercials. And I kind of had a knack for it. I realized there was this whole other part of the business that I could be taking advantage of that I wasn't. So I got into it that way and I kind of sort of pursued, you know, on camera as well as, as voiceover at the same time. Um, and, you know, in the early days, it was just all about being able to get as much experience as possible. Yeah. Both, um, both in, in the audition room and also in front of the camera and behind the microphone and everything. Um, but the more I learned about the business, the more I learned that there were these little pockets of, um, of it that I could take advantage of. And, and if I could develop a skill, then that, you know, led to, um, my income potential being a little higher. And, uh, you know, as, as an actor, you, you kind of want to do everything you can to make as much as you can. Right. Um, because, you know, we don't have a regular paying job. We just get paid when we get hired. And sometimes there's long stretches of time when we're not hired. So, um, I just kind of got started that way and, and felt my way around the Chicago market. Uh, I learned a lot from a lot of teachers and a lot of, of older actors that were much more experienced than I, um, and just kind of figured it out as I went along. And when you were and, starting, what, what kind of, what kind of work was there in Chicago? Was it, was it features at that point? Was it episodic? Was it, what kinds of stuff, commercials? Like what, what were you doing? Yeah. I mean, what I was doing in the early years is still the, the bread and butter of, of the market today. Um, back when I got started in the, in the mid nineties, there really wasn't any TV being shot in Chicago. There, there were some features that, that would come through. Um, but often, you know, they, they never, they wouldn't cast the features or even the TV shows in Chicago. They would bring in actors from New York or LA. Sure. And then they would, they would fill in the smaller roles with local actors. Um, so what I, what I mostly did, uh, were, was commercials and corporate work. And by that, I mean like training videos and, and, you know, um, projects that are not meant to be seen by the general public, but yep. like are internal for internal use only did a lot of that, did some like training. Um, I did some live work. I worked in the trade show industry for a while. Um, and, and that was really good. That was a whole other sort of aspect of work that, um, uh, that I, I didn't know about when I got started, but kind of learned about. Yeah. What, 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 um, what do those jobs look like? I, I, you know, the company added, right. They sure. The yeah, yeah. Production yeah. stuff, Right. So for years I would, um, I would be a, a presenter, uh, at Avid's booth at NAB. And what we would do is, is they would, you know, they would write the scripts and we'd talk about all of the updates for the software, like, you know, pro tools or media composer or whatever. And, um, there would be an avid specialist. So essentially someone who, whose job it is to go train you on how to, how to use their software. And they would partner me up with him and we would do a, a main stage presentation and it would be 15, 20 minutes long about what's going on and, and what's, you know, how the products have changed gotcha. uh, each year. And so I would be the guy that would do a lot of the, um, a lot of the intros and I, I would do some of the marketing bits and then the, the avid employee would do all of the technical bits. Um, so you're kind of and, hosting you know, that, that keynote essentially. Yeah. Gotcha. Essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's like avid was a, is a pretty big company they had a really large presence at the show. So their booth was big. There were a lot of demo stations and we had, you know, this main stage area where, you know, people would come in and they would, they would sit and, and watch the whole thing. Um, so, so that's called, um, 
you know, like hosting or, or being a live narrator, uh, essentially. And, you know, a lot of times companies will hire actors to do that job because they're sales guys who, you know, definitely know more about the products and about the company and can speak, you know, very well about it. But those sales guys are much more valuable actually on the floor interacting mm. with show attendees. So they need somebody who really, you know, can be up on a stage multiple times a day um, and and can at least look like they know what they're talking about. Gotcha. And so they hire actors for that. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, that's a part of the business that I, you know, I go to trade shows and stuff or, you know, I used to go to like the International Builder Show and things like that. And it just never occurred to me that some of those people might be actors. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we kind of assume because of of the messaging that's coming out of their mouths that they really know what they're talking about and they work, they must work for the company. And that company's just really, really lucky that they've got somebody super personable and well-spoken and good in front of an audience, <laughs> you know, to, to deliver their message. But in reality that, you know, that guy's being paid to be there and he'll, he doesn't work for the company at all. Yeah. So you did some of those gigs uh, and and some local work, and then you you started teaching at some point as well. Right, started teaching um, as as more and more people kind of started getting getting into the business because there was more work coming. So um, after uh, about about two thousand five or so, we started seeing an influx in TV production because Illinois passed. Um, a tax credit for yep. production. So it became a lot cheaper to shoot in, in Chicago. And um, between the tax credits and the infrastructure that the state was building, um, crews were beginning to move to the area. And so uh, TV started coming. And then the big change happened, and I, I want to say in like 2010 or, or 2009, when Dick Wolf came in and uh, began shooting Chicago Fire, which then was spun off into Chicago PD and Chicago Med. Yeah, and it's just a, a juggernaut now. It's like Dick Wolf basically runs NBC, like because he just so much of his scripted programming is on their network. Sure, yeah, um, Law and Order, and, and all the Chicago, right. shows. yeah, it's yeah, yeah, and all the Chicago shows they actually do shoot in Chicago. Yeah, so once Dick Wolf came, that opened the door to a bunch of other shows, and so, um, you know, Chicago that was a boom for Chicago actors because you know we had there were there were roles to play where before there weren't. So um, I actually benefited from that. I, I landed on Chicago PD uh, as an assistant state's attorney. And I did uh, about 20 episodes over the course of four seasons or three, three and a half seasons doing that. Nice. So that was great. Yeah. yeah. Were you, because at some point you're in LA now, right? Uh, yeah, we are. So what were you, were you still like when you shot the Chicago shows, were you in Chicago at that point? Or when did you, when did you make the move to the West coast? So when I booked Chicago PD, it was originally booked as a two episode, uh, guest star arc. And that was, that yep. was it. Um, so I went and I shot that. And during that time we had been talking about moving to Los Angeles for a couple of years. Uh, but once we got, got pregnant and had our, uh, had our twin boys, you know, we decided that we weren't going to make the move because we needed the help. You know, our families were, were in the Chicago area. Sure. We definitely wanted to, you know, have these babies and have their grandparents be able to interact with them and everything. So we put off the move to L.A. And then the boys were getting older and I booked this Chicago PD thing and it was a couple episodes. I went and I shot it and that was it. And we moved ahead with our plan for a lot of reasons uh, to leave for Los Angeles. And uh, I'm I'm 
it's it was like a week before the moving truck showed up that my agent called and said that they had more episodes for me to do. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, well, that's great. Yeah. Um, but I don't live here anymore. <laughs> or by the time we shoot, I'm not going to live here. So we're going to have to work something out. So um, my first couple of episodes I, I shot while I was living in Chicago, but the rest of them were shot um, when we had already moved to LA and I would just fly back and forth. Gotcha. And you're one of your sons is in the business now too, right? Yeah, he is. He's a voiceover kid. Evan got started. Our, our little boy got started because I would get auditions uh, for radio or TV spots or whatever. And whenever there was a kid that was in the spot, I just started putting him in the studio because he was <laughs> one of these kids that, that was like super articulate. He yep. spoke very, very clearly at a very young age. And you could just really clearly understand to me in this cute little voice. So I put him on mic, you know, and they would like love it. Yeah. And, and so he got he got hired for a couple of these jobs that um, I just kind of threw him in there and I told him what to say. So he's actually been doing voiceover since before he could read. Oh, wow. Because I would I would literally just say, OK, now say this sentence, you know, and he would say the sentence. Um, and so his first few jobs, I would go into the booth with him. And just basically tell him what to say. He yeah. would just talk. So um, now, obviously, he can read. Obviously, we talk a lot about, you know, um, what it is that he's actually saying and what's going on with the character and stuff and all that. But it started out, you know, he got into it just because I was already doing it. It's it's interesting because, you know, since he's gotten older, he wants to take a little bit more control um, I'm still always in the booth with all of his auditions and I kind of coach him through everything. But, um, you know, now he's kind of like, no, I think, I think this line should be said this way, or I think, <laughs> you know, the character is doing this. So, and he's starting to write now too, which is oh, really awesome. interesting because yeah. he's seen a bunch of scripts in his, in his, in his life. And, you know, so now he's like, okay, I'm going to come up. I came up with an idea for a TV show. I'm going to write a script. That's awesome. And he sits down and he writes it and he gets like everything right. You know, he, he gets all the stage directions right. Yeah. The formatting and everything. So is he into final cool. draft yet or is it is it still just like by hand or something? No, or? no, he found some kind of like online script, free script writing oh, cool. software that, you know, you can't print it or anything. You can't share it, but you can just write drafts. That's so. awesome. Um, so yeah, so he does that. So it's fun. Yeah. It's funny because like, that's sort of where I started too. like, just, we had a video camera around the house as a kid and just making home videos, you know, with my sister or with, you know, kids in the neighborhood, whatever, like at, you know, six, seven, eight years old, uh, being aware of, you know, performing first and then later kind of figuring out some of the camera moves and just, you know, my dad taught us simple things like, you know, doing a jump cut to make a character appear or reappear, <laughs> you know, simple things <laughs> like that, like in camera edits that just, you know, it, it got me thinking about just, it got me consuming media, I guess, in a way that wasn't quite so passive and made me think about sort of the process. And then, you know, it eventually led to, to going to school for it and, and doing it professionally. So it is interesting just sort of how those seeds can get planted early and and how they blossom into something, you know? Yeah. And I just think that that's what childhood is all about is like having fun, but also discovering what it is that's interesting to you. Yeah. Um, you know, and for some for you, obviously, you know, your experiments with with making home movies is like the thing that propelled you into a career. Right. That 
that I think happens, but I also think it's, it's true that like a lot of people wind up doing something other than that, you totally. know, very, you very easily could have wound up, I don't know, working at a bank or something. Right. Um, you know, and with our kid, it's kind of like, you know, I look at it like it, it's teaching him a couple of life skills that he's going to need anyway, no matter what he winds up doing for a career, you know, he's got to be, he's got to be directable, which means he has to be open to suggestions, right? Which means he has to be open-minded. So it's teaching him that it's teaching him, you know, yeah, he's got to be like part of a team. It's, it's not just him. It's, you know, it's me as his coach. It's the director when he does book a job, it's, um, it's the agent that, you know, pre- finds auditions for him and stuff like that. So, um, I just feel like, you know, when you're a kid, your job is to explore the world and, and figure out, you know, what really speaks to you. And some of us get lucky and we find our thing really early on yeah. for others. It takes, it takes a little longer. So it is cool though. Yeah. And that responsibility piece too, I guess, of just how many people are, are sort of counting on you and, and how you're part of that team that, you know, you, you can't just kind of flake out and be like, you know what, like I'm You know, if, if you say you're going to do something, you got to follow through on it. And yeah. And that is so valuable yeah. for a kid to learn. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot too, that, you know, it, it's a different world when you're in the booth, when right. we have a recording booth at home and, when you're in the booth, he knows that he's 100% focused on the task at hand. And it's not time to be silly. It's not time to, you know, goof around or anything. It's about getting a job done. Right. And, you know, I have to say that every once in a while, I kind of pull that out when, you know, maybe something's going on at school back when he actually attended school. Right. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, just kind of like using that as a prompt, like, hey, just remember when you're in the booth, you're doing that. Just like when you're in the classroom, you should be focused on nothing but your classwork, yeah. not goofing off, not doing anything else, you know? So, um, I don't know. I, I hope this stuff sticks with him. I, I can only hope. <laughs> yeah. And if not, like you said, you know, if, if it's not a career, at least it's, you know, it's good framework for just for being a good person, I think, and, and living life. Yeah, exactly. It's foundational. Um, on the kind of the booth at home stuff, just one of the things that, that stood out to me that I saw you posted recently was this uh, this Ten Commandments of, of being a quarantined actor. And it was sort of <laughs> advice for people that are, you know, working actors that are stuck at home right now and can't go out and, you know, be in a play or a movie or, or a TV show. Um, I, I guess before we get into I, I want to get into some of the specifics, I think, there, because I think there's really interesting stuff that, that people can benefit from. But overall, is there sort of any any general advice or just even sort of where your head is in terms of where the business is headed right now. And like, are, are we back to normal in another month or another three months or do you, do you know yet? Oh, I wish I had a good answer. Um, I don't think anybody really knows, uh, you know, as far as when we're going to get back to normal. Yeah. I think the two big, the, the two big questions are, you know, when do we get back to work? And then when we are back at work, what does work look like? Right. Um, because as you know, television production or movie production is a, a, is a huge team effort. You know, you can run pretty lean depending on the projects and, you know, maybe only have, I don't know, camera sound light or, or producer or whatever. 
But if you're talking about, you know, TV production, uh, an episode of, you know, a, an hour long drama, I mean, that's that takes hundreds of people to pull off. So I think right now the discussions around town in in L.A. and New York and, and other you know production circles is how do we get our content out there in, in the way that is safe for our crew members and our cast, but also still compelling content. Yeah. And um, I don't think anybody has a really great answer to that yet. As far as when, um, I, I want to say sometime over the summer, at least that's my hope. I, I have no idea. I mean, that's based on nothing but what I hope will happen. Sure. Um, so I, I don't know. I, re- I really don't know what, what to expect going forward yeah. on either of those fronts. It's been this weird, like, I remember in early March, like when schools first closed and stuff and, and thinking like, okay, two to three weeks of this probably, you know, and then we can kind of get back to normal. And then it's like, well, we're going to be closed through May. Well, we're going to be closed through the end of the school year. And now, I mean, the city of Boston has canceled all public events through and including Labor Day at this point. So, you know, at at least like parades and festivals and stuff, not until September at the earliest. And, you know, it it just it feels like that those goalposts keep moving. And, you know, it'll be interesting, too. I'm curious what you think about just uh, there has been a lot of production happening, you know, people making tele uh, making TV shows on Zoom. Uh, or, you know, things like that or, or with iPhones. Right. Uh, well, are we all as an audience accepting of that because we're all in in the same boat right now? We're all sort of quarantined and stuck at home. Or do you think will there be fundamental changes to sort of the production model? Are we are we at the end of the that kind of golden age of television and just, you know, super glossy, beautiful, you know, TV shows? That's a really good question. You know, we we have been in somewhat of a TV bubble, right, with something like 700 scripted shows in production this year. Sure. You know, that's just not sustainable over time. Like the eyeballs just aren't there to sustain 700 shows. So um, I do think that this event is going to be popping that bubble a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going to look or, you know, what's going to survive and what's not. But I, I do think that this really rapid expansion of original content is probably going to slow down now. Um, with regard to, you know, watching TV spots or TV commercials that are that are created on Zoom, you know, I think I think there's probably going to be some value to that early on in this in this whole thing. Um, in other words, I think audiences, I, I can only speak for myself as a viewer, but I would be interested in seeing, you know, like if I heard that Law & Order started reshooting again, but they did everything on iPhones, well, holy cow, am I going to watch that? Because yeah. I want to know how they did it, right. right? But at some point, the novelty of that is going to wear off, and we're going to want to move beyond this whole pandemic thing. And, you know, so I do think like pandemic storylines are going to come and go, and, you know iPhone production or, you know, prosumer level production is going to come and probably go um, because I, I feel like audiences have generally kind of a short ex- attention span. 
And, you know, not only you have to think about, like, what do we turn to entertainment for? Well, it, it it's to be entertained, but that's also sort of you can translate that into we want to escape. Right. We want it's it's an escape for us. So we don't want to turn on the TV and see nothing but like iPhone footage, you know, because like that's our life. Yeah. We, so we don't want to relive that probably. And and we want to see something that, you know, looks different than our life. So. Well, I, I definitely think there's going to be interest in that kind of stuff. I think that 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 audiences will tire of that and we'll have to go back to some kind of um, if not like super glossy production, you know, something that's uh, a little bit more professionally done. It's interesting because I feel like in my head, I, I'm drawing a distinction here between TV and film. But your point just about escapism like that, that's across all media and that the production model is the same, whether you're talking about, you know, a, a big budget Marvel movie or you're talking about, you know, a show that's, you know, on a niche cable network, like th there's still a lot of the same production that has to happen, uh, you know, art direction and costuming and uh, visual effects right. and the camera department, the sound department, actors, makeup. Yeah, people are still going to want to see some, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy type movie, I think. They're not Yeah. You you can't make those on an iPhone. Even even if you can make, you know, Law and Order on a phone. Right. People still want so, high-end entertainment. They they yeah, you're exactly right. The demand for that hasn't gone away and it won't probably won't go away. But the, the question then is, you know, how do you thrive in an environment where you need to provide that level of content, but you need you, you can't do it with, you know, huge, large groups of people. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of what might be interesting to watch going forward is what does this do to the mocap industry? Because, you know, they motion capture is is that process where, you know, actors are on a soundstage, but they're in um, essentially these bio suits that are like um, emblazoned with markers that, and they're shot with special cameras that keep track of these little dots on their on their clothes. So uh, you, you shoot the you shoot the footage, the computers kind of scan it and then that becomes. Uh, a, you essentially become your human becomes an, a digital avatar yep. inside of a computer, right? That's how avatar was made. That's how all video games that are live action are, are, are made. And that technology has really become, you know, really progressed very nicely over the past decade. I could see a lot more investment going into that because in, if you're shooting, you're creating films that way, then everything is computer generated essentially except the actor's movements. Right. Um, and you know, that doesn't require, you know, 75 extras on set because you can digitally drop them in. All it requires are your, your principal actors wearing the suits, you know, and going through the motions literally on a soundstage. Now, the problem with that is that it tends to look like it's all digital, but right. once the technology gets to the point where it, it you know, it, it's much more lifelike and, and sort of blurs the lines between, you know, the computer generated stuff and reality. Then I think, you know, you're going to see a lot of films, you know, leaning on motion capture as a way to, to tell the story as opposed to going out into the street and shooting there. Yeah, it's interesting because that's sort of all the shows that have shot, you know, over the last six, eight months 
post-production is still happening. You know, a lot of it's at home right. on laptops and it's slower processors and whatever, but you can still edit, you can still do visual effects. You know, the, it's the production piece where where the dangers are, where there's where there's a lot of people on set and a lot of people crammed in a small space. And yeah, that's the idea that, you know, you could have an actor and a cameraman and a director and, you know, just a, a handful of people perhaps on a small motion capture stage and then bring that into post. And, you know, again, it might, it might take two or three years right. of post to get there, but. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and it's also going to make the movie a whole lot more expensive than, you know, traditional methods of shooting it. Definitely. Um, because, because that's what you pay for. You pay for all the computer time and all the, all the tech guys and girls sitting at the desk and doing their, doing their thing. So, um, but I do think that as the as that progresses and gets better and cheaper, as this stuff tends to do, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. So I, I don't know if that's good or bad. I just think that's probably the way, you know, Marvel movies are going to be made going forward. Yeah, def- definitely those <laughs> and maybe a lot yeah. more <laughs> mainstream things, too. Who knows? Um, yeah. Getting back to these kind of the, the, some of your advice for quarantined actors, uh, yeah. the idea of setting up a self tape setup for auditions and stuff. Like how how many auditions were you taping at home prior to all this? Like is that is that something that more and more casting directors were asking for, anyways? Yeah, that was becoming more and more important, uh, especially in the last you know three or four years. Um, and they're they've become important because essentially that removes a a little bit of friction from the casting process. So a casting director, you know, historically would put together a a list of actors that they'd want to see for a part and they would physically bring them into their office. You know, we'd all sit in a waiting room and uh, you would go in one by one to a smaller room and tape your audition there. There'd be a camera there. And then that tape would be viewed by producers, you know, maybe later that day or next day. Um, But, by sort of offloading that responsibility onto the actor to do at home, then they don't have to physically bring people into the office or, or anything like that. They could be doing other work while the actors are doing uh, their auditions at home and the files come in, um, you know, and so the whole thing, it just makes it much, much more efficient for, for the casting director and uh, simpler. Um, So that has been, something that has has gotten to be more and more important over the past few years and now it i just feel like it's going to play a huge role going forward um i think the days of bringing a lot of actors into a a waiting room and making them all sit there um you know while one by one they go into this you know smaller room and do their audition i think those days are if not over they're definitely numbered so it's it's incumbent upon, upon actors to uh, you know, learn how to how to do a good self-tape audition. And unfortunately, what that means is actors not only have to be good actors, but they also have to be technically proficient enough to be able to set up a camera and handle the sound and the lighting and, you know, the angles and all that stuff and make it look and sound good. And that has to become as automatic as the rest of their audition prep. Right, which um, is, is so not usually part of the process right i mean it's it's so foreign yeah yeah and i only i only i believe really really strongly that this is where things are going and i i believe that even before um our current situation and the only reason is because 
the world of voiceover went through this 10 years ago. You know, when audio equipment became affordable enough that we could record at home, there were no more auditions in person at ad agencies or at casting directors office offices because it was just so much easier to have the talent record their their audition at home and send it in. So it, as long as, you know, the casting directors are getting decent results um, from actors, I think the self-tape thing is certainly not going to go away. I think it's just going to become more important. One of your other pieces that kind of dovetails into this was was looking into things like voice acting and, and being able to record from home. Right. When it comes to the audio recording that we do here at home, primarily uh, we do, it's just for auditions. Um, but that's only because auditioning is most of my job. Um, you know, I'll, I'll audition for, I don't know, 15, 25, 35 projects before I land one. Uh, but when I do land one, then uh, we do record here. And what gets recorded here, you know, gets broadcast uh, on TV networks. So um, we use it for, for both auditioning and actually recording uh, at home what are broadcast. Uh, how how challenging is that just in terms of, of soundproofing or, or, you know, getting the room to sound good? Like, did, did you have help from an engineer or something setting up that booth or was that was it trial and error? Like, how how did you get it to a point where it sounds good? Um, well, for us, you know, there was a certain amount of research that that had to be done. But because I, I had been in the business for a long time, I had a bunch of guys that I could just call up and say, hey, this is what I want to do. How do I do that? Yeah. Um, you know, so it helps again to have those relationships that where you know, people are willing to help you out. Um, so I just kind of put together an equipment list and I knew the basics, but when it came to, uh, soundproofing and, and making sure that the room was, you know, a dead space and, and didn't have a lot of echoes, the simplest thing to do is to use a walk-in closet, uh, where, you know, you, your clothes are hanging around and they, um, they provide all the sound dampening you need, you know, um, and at most, I recommend that most people start off that way. Yeah. Uh, when you want to get into, you know, when you actually are making, making some money and you're willing to invest, uh, in a dedicated space, then there are plenty of, um, of booths that you can buy. They're expensive, but they're super effective. And in between that are DIY solutions. You know, I've seen people, get really creative with some PVC pipe and some moving blankets, yep. you know? Um, so it really, there's, there's a way to do it no matter what your budget is or your experience level. And that's, that's the difference between today and when I got started. And part of the reason why I wrote that acting in Chicago book was because when I was doing this, there was, there were no resources to learn how to do this. You just kind of learned by doing, or by asking people who were already doing it. Today, you can go on YouTube and in the span of an hour or two, have literally all the information you need to build a soundproof environment to record in, in yeah, your house. Right. You know, and that just didn't exist years ago. Um, some of the other stuff you talk about is just, you know, educating yourself, uh, watching acting videos, reading books about the craft. And, you know, it, it's nice to have that time, I think, because uh, so often you get you get so caught up in your day job that you don't have the time for that. And I think, yeah, it is, it is nice to be able to reset and just kind of relearn some things, I think. Right. Yeah, I think so. You know, and I make the point 
in, in the piece you're, you're talking about that this might be the only pressure free time period actors ever have. Yeah. Like there's literally no expectation from anyone about what you should be doing right now. So like, I'm not the greatest memorizer in the world, but I know I could be if I just spent the time to do it. And right now, like there's no time pressure. I don't have to like memorize 16 pages of whatever yeah. by next Friday. I can just work on, you know, my memorization skills at my own pace without any pressure from anybody else. And I don't really know once we get back up and running, if you can say that, because as an actor and as really any creative professional, you know, a job that demands a skill can come along at any point. You don't you don't know when it's going to happen. So, you know, in my case, if I suck at memorizing, but all of a sudden I land this job and that re and it requires me to memorize a really long monologue, then I'm going to feel all that tension and and stress over the fact that I just landed this great job. Right. But I, I you know, and you know, it's going to shoot in a week or whatever. Yeah. Just like I got to get it done by that point. Yeah, Ex exactly. But if I spend the time now when I don't have to worry about the stress of it, then I'll be ready when that job comes. Right. So it doesn't matter, you know what you're doing. If you know that you're weak in a certain area and, you know, you could be working on it now because there's really no pressure, then, you know, if you're not working on it now, you're, you're crazy uh, because it's such an opportunity. Um, and that's, I think that's part of my, at least my survival plan through this whole thing is to, is to try not to focus on what I've lost and try to figure out how can I turn this into at least some gain, yeah. you know, um, by, by working on things that I ordinarily wouldn't be able to work on. Uh, one yeah. last thing I, w I wanted to just touch on quickly. I had a chance to watch a couple of, of, uh, of episodes of for all mankind, uh, which oh, I yeah. thought, I thought was awesome. Uh, that, that was a, it's a really cool show and you've, you've an awesome role in it playing Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. What's, uh, did, did you get to work with him at all or, or any of the people at NASA just to figure out sort of how to make that authentic? Unfortunately, um, Buzz didn't have anything to do with the development of the show, so I, I, I was not able to work with him. Um, I haven't met him. He and I exchanged a couple of emails uh, because I reached out to him and let him know what was going on. Yeah, and he seemed he seemed like a very nice guy, um, but uh, I didn't talk to him. But on set, um, part of the reason why the show looks and, and sounds good and, and realistic, we hope, uh, is because we had consultants who were like we had a, a former astronaut well i guess he is an astronaut once an astronaut always an astronaut <laughs> um and uh garrett reisman he so he did a lot and played a, a huge role in making sure we were you know doing doing the right things and looking you know like we knew what we were talking about and doing um and then uh, Mike Akuda was our, our other consultant who did a lot of work on Star Wars, or I'm sorry, Star Trek. Uh, just knows everything about everything, uh, NASA related and space related. He was also another consultant, and and he really kind of kept us on the straight and narrow uh, when it came to the the technical stuff of of you know being in that environment that that time period. I remember some of your, I think Instagram posts maybe around the time of just sort of the production design and sort of every little detail on set. Like how, how wild was that just to walk back <laughs> in time, you know, 50 plus years and, and. Oh my gosh. I have never had 
a more out of body experience <laughs> than when I walked into our set for mission control. Yeah. Um, the, the mission control set is, you know, that room that we've seen a thousand times, uh, on TV or in history books or in Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks, you know, that room, um, was recreated accurately down to the inch, uh, by our, our department. And that was a directive from Apple. Apple said when they greenlit the show, they said, you know, we we're, we're going to let you do whatever you want to do, but we just request that anything historical be completely uh, recreated as accurately as possible. Wow. And so that mission control set looks exactly like it did back in, in, in the sixties when it was new. Uh, in fact, we had some, um, um, some technicians, some engineers from, from that era walk through on a set tour. And one of the guys said, uh, you know, the only thing that's missing are the tobacco stains on the vents in the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> um, everything else was just very complete. So it was, it was a strange experience, but so cool to, to walk into that room and go, Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm literally in the room that I've seen a hundred times, but right. never in a million years thought that I would actually get to walk in. I always think about too, there's, you know, there's a couple of period shows like Mad Men and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel that are kind of set in that same time period. And the thing I always think about is just how complete the art direction is and the sets that like, it, it's so perfect, but sort of knowing the behind the scenes piece of it too, that obviously all you guys that are on camera are in wardrobe and hair and, you know, everything that's, that's accurate. But it must be strangely jarring to look over and, you know, there's the guy, you know, the boom op or something that's just in, you know, regular, uh, you know, jeans or whatever. Like, was that ever strange at all? It was, you know, honestly, what was what was stranger for me was my first couple of days on set. We were we were shooting in Mission Control and there were like 60 extras in period garb. Yeah. And, you know, the 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 garb was so complete it was down to the shoes right yeah, so right. so it was just <laughs> kind of jarring to like um you know be on set and then have to you know on a break go to the bathroom right <laughs> walk into the men's room and there's like 14 guys in really skinny ties and, yeah <laughs> you know in short sleeve dress shirts with pocket protectors and, <laughs> uh in a, in a modern bathroom that that was kind of weird yeah. Um, and probably, but, you know, pulling uh, out iPhones on breaks and stuff too. Right. And exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful show and it's, I, I've watched two episodes just, you know, in preparation for talking to you, but it's a show that I, I think I want to stick with. I'm, I'm curious where it's going to go now. Story-wise. I, I would stick with it. Um, and not just because I'm in it, I, I come back, buzz comes back later in the, uh, uh, later in this, in, in the season, but, um, the storyline takes a little bit of a shift in episode three. Uh, and a lot of people have said that for them, it's when the show really kind of takes off. So, uh, I'd stick with it if I were you. Cool. I think I will. Yeah. Uh, cool. good. Well, thank you, Chris, for, for making the time for this and for chatting. This was, uh, this was really good. I think there's a, there's a lot that I hope people listening will benefit from. And, you know, just it's, it's nice just for me even <laughs> to learn about some of this stuff and to hear other perspectives on the business, especially, you know, I spent 15 years at one place. And so it's, it's a chance for me to start broadening some of my horizons too. Yeah. Thank you for asking. I'm, I'm honored that you, you wanted to, to include me as part of your um, inaugural efforts. So <laughs> um, I'm happy to share anytime, anytime you need me, I'm around. All right. I appreciate it. Take care, Chris. Good talking to you. You too. All Take right. care. 
How about that, huh? Chris Agos. Chris is the author of Acting in Chicago and the voiceover startup guide. He also appears now in Apple TV Plus's For All Mankind. It's a really interesting show. It's really worth checking out. Before we go today, I want to give you a little preview of the show we have coming up for you on Monday. I'm really excited about this one. I, uh, I'm going to be talking to a former Disney Imagineer who designed theme parks, and then he's had his own design studio in Los Angeles for the last uh, 16 years or so, doing everything from high-end car dealerships to private planes to airports, malls, spaces, retail, just about everything. And he has a really interesting take on the physical entertainment space. What's it going to take for us to feel comfortable and safe going back out to the movies or to the stores or to theme parks like Disneyland or Disney World? So here's a little preview of my interview with Eddie Sato. So how do you take and create less friction in an experience of safety? And, and also, like you say, reassure people. I mean, the, the mask is a positive thing in the sense that it's reassuring. Maybe you put, and, and they're doing this already, you put fun faces on the masks and you make it fun. I mean, who doesn't like a masquerade ball? So, I mean, there's ways of getting through this, but I always see, hey, isn't creativity the way to get there? Yeah, you have a scientist and a doctor involved, of course, but it's also, let's make it fun. That's Eddie Sato coming up on Monday's episode of Quarantine Creatives. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you always get the new episodes right in your feed. If you have a chance to, if you can rate the show or leave a review, that is really awesome to see. And please feel free to send me your thoughts on social media. I love knowing what you're thinking about. I love knowing who you think would be great to talk to next. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe. <laughs>